Welcome to the Citizens Youth Podcast. Citizens Youth is a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church in Vancouver, Washington. Citizens is a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit us online at nwgospel.com forward slash citizens. Hey, how's it going? So, uh, no one introduced me, so I'll just introduce myself, I guess. I am super excited that I get to speak here tonight. Sam called me about two hours ago, said he needed a speaker. So, I think we were on a conference call, actually, when that happened, so... Um, So my name is James, and um, I'm actually connected to all of you, even though you don't know it, uh, or some of you don't know it. My daughters are a part of Citizens. In fact, the very first thing that Layla and Kamaria went to was winter camp uh, with you all, So, and they've been coming here ever since. So I'm I'm excited about that. You'll notice that they're not here if you look around and you know them. Uh, They're not here because I'm speaking tonight, and they're so afraid that I'm going to embarrass them. No, I'm just kidding. I, they're, I, they're, uh, they're up in Canada visiting uh, their cousins. So, um, but I'm here, and uh, I want to tell you. I, I want to tell you a couple of things. One is that uh, I used to be a youth pastor. I was youth pastor for 20 years, and I was a volunteer youth leader before that. And then I was a youth director for a national youth organization after that. So I've been doing youth ministry for a long time. So I love being a part of what we're doing right here. This is great. And here's the other thing that I loved. As a youth pastor, my favorite time of year was summer because I basically canceled all our programming and we just did barbecues. That was pretty much it. We just, it was like, whose house are we going to this week? And I loved that because I like eating and I like not planning. So it was great. It was like youth pastor paradise. Um, but the other thing we would do that I always loved was we would go to uh, amusement parks. Do you, you know, we're, we're kind of new here. Is there an amusement park around here? There isn't one? Like, what's the closest one? Is there one in Portland? If you could all stop talking at the same time, then I would understand. So is there one in Portland? Oh, what's that? Is that a place? Is it? <laughs> All right, so where, uh, where I lived was, uh, I was a youth pastor in Chicago, suburbs of Chicago, and there's a place there called Great America, and it truly is, have you actually been to Great America, or, or do you just think America's great? <laughs> like, ple- Pledge of Allegiance is coming out next, so, so Great America is, um, if Disneyland is, is about stories and princesses, Great America is about unbelievable roller coasters. That's all it's about. It's a, it's a park that majors in roller coaster, and I love roller coasters. And so I always loved our annual trip. Every summer, we'd go to Great America, and I love that. But I don't know if you know this about roller coasters. How many of you like roller coasters? Oh, you do? Okay, great. How many of you are scared to death of roller coasters? How many of you have never actually been on a roller coaster? Scared to death and never been on one. That makes a lot of sense. All right, so here's the thing about roller coasters. Have you ever heard of the law of diminishing returns? It means that the more you do something, the less you get the excitement from that thing. It's the law of diminishing returns. It becomes familiar and then it's just not as exciting. So here's the thing. 
When you go to an amusement park, you find the biggest roller coaster, the highest one. Whatever, whatever roller coaster has the largest, highest, first drop, and you stand in line very first thing when you get to the park because it will not get better after the first roller coaster. So I taught my students this. One time I was on a trip with junior high uh, students, and there was a girl who'd never been on this one roller coaster. It's, it's called the American Eagle. It's one of those wooden roller coasters. It's kind of the side-by-side thing. And uh, it was super exciting, huge drop at the beginning of this one. And I told this little girl, she's a middle school girl. She was pretty small. I told her, here's what you got to do. We, we're going to wait for the front seat. We're not going to go just on any car. We're waiting for the front seat. And, and this is what you do. When you get to the very top, you put your hands up as high as you can and you hold them up. You sit up as straight as you can, raise your hands high up over your head and you hold them up until you get all the way down the drop because it just makes it all that much better. First, first roller coaster of the day, we're going up and we're doing the, you know, the that little thing where it just clicks all the way up and the whole time you got butterflies just building in your stomach and it's the first one of the day so you haven't had that feeling yet, that sinking stomach feeling yet. So we get to the top and we're just about to go over and I said, okay, do it. Just sit up as straight as you can. I, I like was showing her how to do it. Straight as you can, raise your hands as high as you can and, and we're just about to go over and the roller coaster stops. And, this, and the voice comes over the speaker, man in the front row, please sit down. And I'm like, I am sitting down. <laughs> She's just really short and I'm really tall. I'm sitting down. Sit down or we will stop the ride. You've already stopped the ride. So I didn't know what to do. I was sitting down. So I went like this and they started the ride again. I just like slouched <laughs> and they started the ride again. So it starts to go up and over and it goes around and it's super fun and we scream and it's hilarious and she's scared to death and she probably hates me to this day and it was awesome. And we go all the way around, we come back into the station and I'm about to get out of the seat and a guy comes over to me, one of the guys who's operating the thing, comes over to me and he stands in the way so I can't get out of the car. He just stands there and he's like, you know, like, I don't know, 14 or something. And he just leans over and he goes, sir, <clears throat> sir, you're not allowed to stand on roller coasters. And I said, I don't know what to tell you. I wasn't standing. I'm tall. I looked like I was standing. Maybe I saw you, sir. You were standing on the roller coaster. So I was like, okay, okay, can I get out now? He goes, listen, this is your first warning. After this, you're going to have to leave the park if, if this happens again. I was like, okay, I got it. My first warning, got it. So then I walked away. As I'm walking away, I'm thinking to myself, well, how would they know? Like, did an all-points bulletin go out from that roller coaster to all the other roller coasters? If you see an extremely tall man standing on any of the roller coasters, he's already been warned once. <laughs> Please ask him to leave. I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. So, um, so I stood on all of the roller coasters that day. Actually, they have one roller coaster where you have to stand. It's a standing roller coaster. I didn't know what to do. I was like, I'm going to get kicked out if I go on that one. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be horrible. All right, so let me tell you a little bit of what I want to talk about tonight. I want to tell you something that I learned when I was a youth pastor. And um, there, was a, there was a group of people who did a study of teenagers 
and their religious lives, which sounds like a really boring study, turns out it was super fascinating. They wanted to do a study, they wanted to do research about the religious lives of teenagers, and they did, and they, and they spent a lot of years and a lot of money and a lot of time doing it, and the results that they came up with were fascinating to me as a youth pastor. Because they said, as they studied the religious lives of American teenagers across the country, uh, from almost any different kind of church that you can imagine, Christian churches, I think maybe they were just looking at some Mormon churches and Catholic churches and Christian churches all the way across the border, and, and uh, all the way across the board, and they, were, they, they discovered some things that were happening no matter where they did this study. Everywhere they went, they found similarities. It kind of didn't matter what sort of church it was. It kind of didn't matter what state it was in, whether it was uh, rural or an urban setting. It didn't seem to matter what uh, cross-culturally. It just didn't seem to... There weren't a lot of variances in the study. And here's what they discovered. They discovered that most American teenagers were practicing a different kind of religion than had ever been measured or seen or heard of before. So they had to make up a name for it. They made up a name for this religion. They called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Which sounds super cool, right? What church do you go to? I go to the moralistic, therapeutic deist church. Oh, they have good youth group? They do, yeah. They, they go on roller coasters, it's great. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Okay, that's just, that's crazy. That's a researcher coming up with a name that just doesn't help unless you explain it, all right? So here it is, moralistic. Good. They found that a lot of American teenagers, the majority of them actually, in churches were practicing this religion that said, we're supposed to be good, which is good, I guess. That's good that they, that they realize it's, it's important to be good. It's important to be a good person and do good things and not do bad things. Moralistic. Therapeutic. I also want this to be like a therapy session for me, so I want to feel good. Not only do I want to do good and be good, I also want to feel good. And deism. And generally, the idea of deism, and this is very general, the idea of deism is there is a God. He may not have very much to do with me, but there's a God out there. Maybe he set things in motion, and that's about all I know about him, but there's a God out there. And if God wants anything from me, he wants me to feel good, and he wants me to be good. And the researchers found this over and over and over again. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. I want to tell you that's not new. They thought it was new or it seemed like it was a new phenomenon, but it's not new. It's actually ancient. Moralistic, therapeutic deism has been around for a long time and I want to share with you a story. I'm going to share with you two stories from the New Testament tonight. And um, one of them is about a rich man. And the other one is about a rich man. So they're both about what? A rich man. Yeah, very good. I'm glad you're staying with me. So we have two rich men, and they, I want, what I actually want to do is I want to compare and contrast these two rich men, these two stories. They both had an encounter with Jesus. That's why we get to read the story, because Luke actually recorded these two encounters. But I want to tell you something about these two rich men and the way that Luke wrote the story down. 
Luke is one of the guys who wrote the story of all the things that Jesus did, or at least a lot of the things that Jesus did when he was living on earth, when he was in the three years of ministry that we know about. He wrote these things down. And Luke put these two stories really closely together. Now, chronologically speaking, they probably didn't happen one right after the other. But when Luke wrote down his gospel, he wanted these two stories close together. And I'm going to explain to you why in a couple of minutes. But I just want you to hear these two stories. So I'm just going to go through these two stories so that you can hear them. And I want you to listen for similarities. And I want you to listen for differences. And I'm just going to be stopping as I read. So I don't know. I don't, are the verses going to be up there? Because they, they are not. That's perfect. We don't need that. I'll just read it, and then you won't be distracted by any verses up there. That's even better. All right, so the first one is the title of it in my Bible is The Rich and the Kingdom of God. And it starts out like this. A certain ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Listen to the question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to live forever? And Jesus' response, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus is checking to see if this man knows who he's talking to. No one is good but God alone. Are you clear in the question that you're asking? Are you clear why you're calling me good? You know the commandments. You're a a good Jewish man, is basically what he's saying to him. You're a good Jewish man. You know the commandments. You've learned them since you were young, right? You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said, All of these I have kept since I was a boy. I I think that this question was a dishonest question. I think this rich young ruler came to Jesus with the question of, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And everyone around wanted to hear the answer because he was a very important man. He was rich. He was a ruler. He was obviously a a good person in the way he was living his life. And often they believed back then that if you were good, God would bless you with riches. So his riches were evidence of his goodness. So he came with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But I don't think he actually wanted an answer from Jesus. I think what he wanted from Jesus was an affirmation. Don't worry about it. You've got it. You're doing everything that you're supposed to do. You know the commandments and you're obeying. Since you were a boy, you've obeyed these commandments. You've got it. He was, he was hoping that Jesus would just affirm him and build him up in front of the eyes of everyone around who already thought he was a good person. But Jesus' next line changes everything. When Jesus heard him say this about obeying all those laws since he was a little boy, when he heard him say this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. All the people around (laughs) knew that this man was good, and his wealth indicated to them that God had blessed him. And Jesus said, you still lack one thing. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. 
when he heard this, when the rich man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. A very wealthy man being told to give away his treasure made him a very sad man because he loved his treasure. Let me take you to the next story. Remember that one. Well, let me take you to the next one. It's just a few verses later in the book of Luke. It's a story you've probably heard. It's about a guy named Zacchaeus, also a wealthy man. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. I got to stop and tell you about this. You've maybe heard this before, but tax collectors back then, these were people, these were Jewish people. They were part of the Israelite, they were part of the Israelites. They were Jewish people who were working for the Roman government, which Jewish people didn't like when people worked for the Roman government. But not only were they working for the Roman government, their job was to take taxes from the Jewish people and pay it to the Romans. That was their job. But not only was that their job, but on top of that, they were actually stealing. They were taking more taxes than they were supposed to from the Jewish people, their brothers and sisters, same nation. And they were taking more than their share and they were keeping some for themselves and then they were giving the rest to the Romans, whatever they required. So tax collectors were getting rich and people didn't like them. Zacchaeus was the chief of the tax collectors. He wasn't just any tax collector. He was the tax collector over the tax collectors. So everybody's out there stealing, skimming a little bit off the top when they collect the taxes, and they're keeping some for themselves. But because he's the chief, he's getting some as well, and he's getting it from all over the place. Zacchaeus is raking in the money. He's the chief tax collector. But it says... He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Just so you know, that's not dignified behavior for a man. Men don't normally climb trees. 11-year-old boys climb trees. Men normally don't, especially men who are professionals, which Zacchaeus was supposed to be. But he was so eager to see Jesus, he was willing to be weird and do something kind of crazy and climb this fig tree. When Jesus reached the spot, there's no indication that these two had ever met before. Zacchaeus didn't know who he was. That's why he was going to see who he was. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people around, remember all the people around last time when the rich young ruler was, was Jesus told him that you have to give everything away, you're lacking in something? They were all astonished. This time they're all astonished again. It says, all the people saw that Jesus was going to Zacchaeus' house and they began to mutter. There is not nearly enough muttering in this world anymore. I think we should bring that back. They began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Not just any sinner. A tax collector. 
That was the worst kind of sinner, a traitor sinner, a thief sinner. And Jesus chose to go to his house. He could have chosen any good person in the crowd. He chose to go to Zacchaeus' house. So we don't know what happens next. I wish we did. We have no idea what Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about that day. Because there's just this gap where he goes to his house to be his guest. And then all of a sudden Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, remember he's the chief tax collector, so he's cheated everybody out of everything. But he says, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, I remember hearing this story when I was a child. And uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't very smart in math, but it, it was pretty clear to me that something was wrong with this part of the story. Because look at what Zacchaeus says he's going to do. He says, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. Half of everything I have, I'm going to give it to the poor. Not, not pay it back to people I've stolen from. I'm going to take half of everything and give it to the poor. And then I'm going to, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. Do you see the math problem? So he's stolen things from people, and that's how he became wealthy. And whatever he's done with his wealth, he certainly has a lot of it, but he's going to take half of it up front and give it all to the poor. And then he's going to pay back four times what he's stolen from everybody. And that's all he did was steal from people. The math doesn't add up. And in in my childish mind, I remember thinking, well, he's not going to have anything left. What's he... What's he going to do for food? What's he going to do? What's going to happen to Zacchaeus if he gives away half of his money to the poor and then pays back everybody four times? By the way, the law only required that you pay back like one and a half times if you stole money. He said, no, I'm going way over that four times. I'm going to pay it back four times. Here's what I understand now that I didn't understand when I was a child. That was Zacchaeus's plan. His plan was to have nothing left. Here's the difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. The rich young ruler loved his money. The rich young ruler was actually living for his money. And when he told Jesus all the good things that he had done and all the people around agreed, it was because he was only looking at the outside. He was only telling about the outside. I've obeyed this law. I've obeyed that law. I've done this. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do. But Jesus didn't look at the outside. He looked directly into the rich young ruler's soul. And he saw another God. He looked right into his heart and he saw that there was another God in his life. And it was his money. And he called him on it. He said, give it all away. If you're you're going to be able to follow me, give it all away. Now let me be really clear. That is not as what required of you to follow God. You don't have to give all of your money to the poor. It was what was required of the rich young ruler because God was saying to him, I will have no other God in you. I will not share space with another God in you. And the rich young ruler walked away sad because he was so wealthy. 
Zacchaeus, on the other hand, we have no indication that Jesus said to him, you know what you need to take care of, Zacchaeus? This money issue you have. You've got problems with your money. It really clearly says Zacchaeus stood up and told Jesus, listen to what I have decided. Listen to what I'm going to do. I'm going to give away half of everything that I have to the poor and pay back four times everything that, I'm, that I've stolen. This will no longer be a God in my life. This will no longer be something that rules my life. And he gave it all away. So what's the difference? What's the difference between these two guys? The one who looked really good on the outside, moralistic, felt pretty good about himself, therapeutic, believed there was a God, for sure. He was obeying commands that God gave. But he wasn't changed on the inside. He wasn't, he wasn't ready to be changed on the inside. And that's because he believed in a false gospel. He believed in a gospel that, I, that I've heard people call just behavior modification. Just making sure that I do enough. It's like a scale. If I can do enough good stuff, you might, you might think this way. This, might, this is kind of a default for us as humans. We think this way all the time. If I can do enough good stuff, that'll outweigh the bad stuff. And if I do that, then I'll be a good person. Because I've got more good. I've got more positives in my ledger than negatives. So I, I, I can outweigh the bad with good. And so a lot of people, this is, this is really true in our society, a lot of people will give things away and they will serve and do things to, to ease their conscience about the bad things that they've done. That's just behavior modification. That's not the true gospel. And here's the hard part. When they were doing this study, I was listening to this study that I referred to earlier on the religious lives of teenagers. I was looking at it going... They're doing it, they're, they act like that here and they act like that here and they think like that here and they think like that there and it doesn't seem to matter where we are or what the demographics are. It seems like this is all over the place. So where are they learning it? If it's all over the place, where is it, how is it possible that they're all learning the same thing? And I had to stop as a youth pastor and go, they're learning it from me. They're learning it from their parents. They're learning it from our churches. That's why it's the same everywhere. That's what we've told them. We've told them since they were little children. We've told you since you were little children, be good. Be good. And we want to make sure you feel good. And oh yes, there's a God. But, but be good. And feel good. And then maybe God will bless you or maybe he won't. But at least you'll be good and you'll feel good. I was guilty. I was guilty of... Now, I never said it just like that because that sounds silly. But it was the message that I had received as a child. It's the message that they were receiving as a child. And it's quite possibly, I'm not saying it is, but it's quite possibly the message that you've received. That the point of Christianity, the point of your religious life is to be good because if you're good, you will please God. If you're good, you will feel good. If you're good, you'll have more good things and then it'll outweigh the bad things that you've done because all of us have done bad things. Every single one of us. So I felt some responsibility for creating this gospel, this false gospel. 
there's a there's a, a well-known author who actually called it the gospel of sin management uh, or um, which was just trying to figure out how to manage all of the sin in your life how do I actually get my sin all in line so that I feel good so that I look good so that God thinks I'm good that's a false gospel just managing sin is not the point of religion well actually it kind of is the point of religion it's not the point of a relationship with Christ it's not about just managing our sin I don't know if you're tired of it I remember very clearly clearly in my life when I realized this is what I was doing I was just managing sin I was just trying to be better than I was the day before I was just trying to make sure that I wasn't um, doing as many bad things as good things I, I just wanted to make sure that I, if I could just manage this sin it's exhausting it's exhausting and I feel bad for the rich young ruler because he came to Jesus proud but I think exhausted he came to him proud of all the things that he had done he had worked so hard to be good all his life and obey the commands and all these things and the entire time He's worshiping another God in his heart. And I feel bad for him. I feel bad for him because he was exhausted. And Jesus said, no, you've got another God. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, got the true gospel. And this is what I want you to hear tonight. Zacchaeus got the gospel that is the gospel of transformation. The transforming gospel of a person's soul. That's what the gospel is about. It's not about behavior. Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to change his behavior. In fact, he went to his house and was mocked by the people, the mutterers. He was mocked by the mutterers for going to Zacchaeus' house. He didn't ask Zacchaeus to change. If you could just take care of your theft problem, Zacchaeus, I would love to come to your house. I would love to be your friend if you could just stop being such a dishonest jerk, then I would love to come and hang out with you at your house. Jesus walked right into his house, apparently sat and had a meal with him, spent enough time there that they were having really important conversations, I believe, and Zacchaeus, at some point, in the presence of Jesus, his heart was transformed. His soul was transformed by the encounter with the true God. This, Christian teenagers, is what true religion is like. This is what the true gospel is about. That you would know God and, and your only desire in life would be to please God first. Hannah, I'm glad you shared, Hannah, right? You, ran, you shared your story about running and I'm glad you still run. Because we don't just give up our lives because we put God first, right? We don't give up our lives. Actually, what happens is our lives become so much more meaningful when the things we do honor God. Have you ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? How many of you have ever seen that movie? Really old movie. You should all go home and watch it tonight after the party. You should all see this movie. There's a great scene in that movie 
where a runner who's in the Olympics or deciding whether or not he wants to go to the Olympics or go into the ministry has to decide, am I going to be a pastor? Am I going to go into, am I going to go into the ministry? Or am I going to run in the Olympics? I can't decide. I can't decide. And people are pressuring him both in different directions. And he said at one point, he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Because I'm really good at running. God gave me that gift. The true gospel is not just trying to behave and make sure we don't do anything wrong. The true gospel is being transformed in the inside so that the things we do honor God and make him smile. I'm going to close in prayer. But I want you to just think with me for a moment about your own lives. Think with me for just a moment about where you feel like, man, I've really been scrambling to keep my sin in line, just to manage it. If I can keep this one compartmentalized over here, that's in a filing cabinet that no one else has the key to, I'll just lock that up and I can just kind of, I'm the only one who gets in there, so that's okay. And then I've got these other sins that other people kind of know about, but, you know, they're my friends, so they'll let me, they'll let me skate on that one, I don't, I'm not going to get in, and then... And, but then I've got all these things that I need to do to, in order to be a better person so that nobody knows about all this sin over here. I don't know if I'm describing you or not. But if I am, you've, you've accidentally, not on purpose, I don't believe, but you've accidentally fallen for a false gospel that you think it's just about managing your sin. And I want to tell you that you have a chance to be free from that tonight. You can be free from the sin management system. Because all you really have to do is say, God, I'm all yours. Just like Zacchaeus said. I'm, Zacchaeus said, I'm getting everything out of the way that is a problem. I'm getting everything out of the way. I want to take you, actually, I have to take you back to the passage because there's one, part, there's one part of the first story, the rich young ruler, that links the two stories together. Here's the link. It comes at the end here. It says, Jesus looked at him, the rich young ruler, and because he, he, uh, he, he went away sad. And Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What? Okay. Than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then it says this, and this is the linking part of the passage, I believe. When those around heard this when they heard that it's it's impossible it's really hard it's almost completely impossible for this rich man to go into heaven or to inherit the kingdom it's really really hard it's like trying to put a camel through the eye of a needle you know the eye of a needle is like what you put the thread through when you're sewing with a needle you're going to put a camel through there so that's the image that jesus has that's how hard it is and everybody around went oh well, if the rich guy who's done everything right since he's a kid can't get in, what chance is there for us? And Jesus says, totally lost the page. And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. If you had lined these two guys up in front of the crowds and you said, which one of these is more likely to inherit eternal life. Overwhelmingly, they would have said, the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus, that's impossible. He's such a scumbag, there's no way he's going to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, yes, with man, this is impossible. But with God, 
all things are possible. Maybe you feel like your sin management system is impossible to overcome. Maybe you feel like you're just completely powerless against the sin in your life. I want to repeat Jesus' words. With man, this is impossible. On your own, this is impossible. If you do it by yourself, if you do it in your own power, if you do it by trying to do the things that you think you're supposed to do, if that's your plan, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Your life can be transformed. So now I'm going to pray. I I lied to you earlier. I said I was going to pray. Now I'm totally going to pray. And as I pray, I want want to invite you to pray a prayer with me if you need to. If you need to pray this prayer. If there's something about your life that right now you're measuring it all together and you're going, man, that's the, the, that, that gospel, that false gospel has me. Just trying to manage my sin. If that's you, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. That we would instead receive the true gospel that is the gospel of soul transformation. So pray silently to yourselves. You don't don't need to pray it out loud, but as I pray, if you want to join in this prayer, just silently pray this prayer. Father, I'm tired from managing sin. I'm tired from trying to be good so that I can feel good, so that maybe you would look at me and be pleased. I'm tired of pretending that I have it all together when I actually don't. I'm tired of feeling like like my sin rules me and nothing else does. So I open my heart to you tonight and I invite you to transform my heart that my desire would not to be do things that are good for me, but my desire would be to do what you wish, to do what would bring honor to you. Do a transformation in my life, I pray, oh God. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 